0: Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, the higher ed editor here at Ed Surge, where a publication covers education. It is back to school season, and for colleges, that usually brings all kinds of familiar rituals. Families helping their kids move into dorms, professors going over their notes and preparing to teach a new batch of students, campuses springing back to life. After a quiet summer. Well, that's usually the way of things. But here we are in the fall of 2020 with a global pandemic raging. And for colleges, nothing is quite the same. They have a,
1: a plexiglass shield at the front of the classroom where I would stand behind.
2: I'm going to wear a face mask and shield. And I don't know how I'm going to speak properly. So I, um, I requested a microphone that I actually put underneath a face mask. Uh,
3: when I uh, came in, uh, I had to do a temperature check. So came in after hours, uh, so I had to call the fire department, and then they did a temperature check.
0: We're doing something different on the podcast today and throughout the semester. We've signed up professors and students at six colleges, asking them to share audio diaries of college life in this unprecedented time. We're calling it Pandemic Campus Diaries. It'll be right on this feed. You just heard a couple of the profs and and one student from the diaries a second ago, and we'll be getting to know them over the next couple of months. we have a mix of campuses across the country included, as you'll hear, and the students are all very different as well. Of course, there is no way to capture the whole diversity of higher education, and so this is just a kind of a series of audio postcards, really. It wasn't until I started hearing these diaries from professors, that I truly understood how high the stakes are for each and every professor at campuses going back. And I was starting to get at how stressful it is for professors to try to prepare for all the possible scenarios of teaching in a classroom where the COVID-19 virus could be an invisible visitor.
4: This is Rachel Davenport, a professor at Texas State University. When I think about my biggest concern for the semester, at first, all the things I'm actively thinking about rush to mind. Um, will the new tech work the way I need it to? Will a student try to rebel against wearing a mask? Um, How will I ensure assigned seats for hundreds of students? But if I take a step back and explore the real fear that I have, what I'm most concerned about is that one of my students will get sick enough that they are forever affected or sick enough that they don't make it. And then if that happens, will I wonder Did they catch it in my class? Could I have done something different to have prevented it? Maybe I didn't pay enough attention to mask use or keep them maximally separated. Maybe I wasn't present enough on Zoom so they felt compelled to come to class in person instead. What if a student gets really, really sick because of my class? I'm supposed to protect them, aren't I?
0: I'll be stepping in from time to time to, to kind of bring in expert voices and help give some context to these highly personal accounts. As listeners know, this is a rapidly developing story, so there are going to be surprises. As you'll hear in this very episode, there's some twists just in the last couple of weeks since we've been gathering tape from our diarists. So you should stay tuned all the way through the episode. We're planning this as a seven-episode series right here on the EdSearch podcast feed, so subscribe to the Answered Podcast, if you haven't already, to hear how things go. Each episode is gonna be based loosely around a theme. And today, we're focused on the simple, but okay, I'm starting to think impossible question. How do you prepare for this back-to-school season like no other? I asked the students and the professors to share what they were doing to get ready, and also what their biggest concerns are for the fall.
4: This is Rachel Davenport. I'm a professor at Texas State University. I'm actually um, on campus right now checking out my classrooms just to see how everything works and and to see the new tech that they put in. Uh, The classroom I'm in now, it's my large lecture class. I have 250 students and the room has, you know, fixed seating and a big projector at the front we're only allowed to have the 50% capacity, so what I'll have to do is split my class so that half come on Tuesday and the other half come on Thursday. And when they're not here, they'll participate by Zoom. Uh, they, I'm here to try to figure out how do I live stream on Zoom while teaching face-to-face. And they, they put in new tech, so they put in this new camera and microphone. Uh, I was just testing them out. So it's useless. The camera the camera does show kind of the general front where a professor might stand. But um, it doesn't show the projector. It doesn't show a whiteboard or
1: anything like that. This is Deb Nichols. I'm an associate professor at Purdue University. And I decided to check out my new classroom space today. It's really hard to, I tried a new mask today. It's a cloth mask and it's, it's a little bit thicker than the usual kind of blue medical masks that are commonly available. And I find that talking in this cloth mask is a little bit harder. So I'll have to see what that feels like on um, when I actually come in and have to project just a lot of things to think about. And being in the classroom after having been gone since mid-March is a little bit surreal because it's very quiet in the building right now Um, and a little scary.
2: Hi this is uh, Sabina, professor at Purdue University and I'm just on campus here um, standing in front of Smith Hall that's uh, where I'm going to teach um and this semester um, I will be teaching in a hybrid way one class hybrid meaning there is a face-to-face section a part and also an online part and uh, I can't get in, unfortunately, it's locked, it says uh, face mask required, um, but I just can't get in. I wanted to look at it, but I actually looked at the plans before. Um, it's going to be interesting. This room fits like typically 200, now there are a few students in there. Um, I'm going to wear a face mask and shield. and. I don't know how I'm gonna speak properly, so i um I requested a microphone that I actually put underneath a face mask because otherwise it's going to be um very difficult to actually communicate uh then for the streaming that's going to happen in parallel, I wonder what experience that is if someone watches a video where someone is speaking with a face mask, so I think actually an experience online with someone not wearing a face mask and explaining a topic might be actually better from a learning point of view. Anyways, it's going to be an interesting start.
1: I can say I am a little nervous. I always get a little nervous before the semester starts, but having this added concern of COVID and having, you know, so many 30-some thousand 18 to 24-year-olds returning to this community, does make me a bit nervous particularly as a as a parent um and as a community member being concerned about um what the impact could be on the broader community on my own family i'm a single mom so it does
2: make me concerned when it comes to the question what's my biggest fear i i don't think i have really fear i just have you know i have concerns that beyond the actual risk of getting infected Um, there's a lot of things I have to think of in addition to that what if a student doesn't show up with a mask and you know I have the right to leave if they uh, don't show up with a mask but is that good for me as a teacher to act like that yes I think I should Um, overall will the teaching go well with me being packed up there with mask and shield etc I don't know Those recordings
0: were made a couple weeks ago, which in pandemic time is forever ago, right? And back then, the overall mood in higher ed felt more upbeat about opening in the fall. As I was doing research, though, on this back-to-school planning, it was clear to me that life on campus was going to be, I don't know if people out there like their sci-fi, but dystopian. And that would be especially true for students living in dorms. There was a tweet in July that captured just how strange and restrictive campuses are gonna be.
5: For students who choose to live on campus in the fall, I'm increasingly thinking campus life will be a combination of a monastery and a minimum security prison.
0: The tweet was by Robert Kelchin, a professor at Seton Hall who studies higher ed, and that was him reading it. I was curious to hear more of his thoughts, so I called him up for an interview.
5: And since I tweeted that out back in early July, Syracuse has even been using that language of a minimum security prison, and when they're requiring students to do their quarantine, everything is being monitored, everything is being tracked, and even for the rest of the fall semester, it's going to look a lot like that because movement around campus and the area will be limited, and students will be expected to spend a lot of time in their residence halls, and that's to keep students as safe as possible. And to get through as much of the semester as they can. I I think they want to set realistic expectations for students. If they're coming, they need to follow these guidelines. And if they don't want to, don't come back.
6: This is Josh from Syracuse University, and this is week two of quarantine in my dorm. At first, we were told during a Zoom call that this quarantine would be similar to a minimum security prison. And nobody knew if that meant we'd get to interact with anybody else or what. So a lot of people were concerned about that for quarantine. And a lot of us, I know we're considering just going to a cold state for two weeks instead of coming here to quarantine. But once we were told that we were allowed to hang out with people in our building, most of us were like, "Okay, well, then we'll go because we got to we got to settle in early, meet some people. And these friendships that we're making will definitely be better friendships than we'll make with most of the people that move in normal time. I am recording this from my dorm room. My roommate has not moved in yet, so I'm alone in my dorm. Nobody else in my on my floor has had their roommates move in, so we all have our own rooms for the quarantine. And yeah, so the dining halls are not open for us to go. We have to order online what food we want. Of like a selection and they bring up the food to us in our lounge at our floor every day for lunch and dinner and they deliver breakfast with dinner so basically there's no dining hall accessible to us at least for quarantine and i know it's going to be takeout i think after quarantine so we're not even going to get to dine in the actual dining hall but oh well we have to make some sacrifices in order to be able to have school in person this semester My biggest concern about this semester would probably be that Syracuse is considered a top party school, so a lot of people that are going here are going to want to party, and they're going to want to do that not in the dorms. I think that if there were some things in the dorms that are like 10 or 15 people in a room, that that'll be fine, especially seen as each dorm after quarantine is over is grouped as a family unit, so we can do anything in our own dorm. We're just not supposed to go to other dorms. I know that people are going to want bigger things and there will be bigger things somewhere, whether it's on campus or not. And I know people will get in trouble, but it's, it's a question of if the damage is done too early or not. That's my only concern. I don't think that any of the in-person class stuff is going to be an issue because they've maxed out the in-person class size at 30 people so that everyone can be socially distancing during class. So Syracuse has been very, very proactive about that, and it's it's looking good. I just think they have to get through normal move-in. If cases slip in during normal move-in, I think that we're done, and if they don't, I think that the semester will last as long as there aren't too many off-campus parties or anything like that.
0: Just a couple of days after Josh made that recording, a big shift happened in the national story about reopening campuses. A couple of big name universities started their fall semesters. You know, some colleges start earlier than others. And these universities quickly hit snags. At the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, for instance, as probably you read in the papers, students did have some gatherings, and the university ended up shutting down in person instruction just one week after the semester began because of a cluster of COVID 19 outbreaks. One week. And back at Syracuse University, where you just heard Josh worry that students would want big parties, a big student gathering did happen there last Wednesday on the main campus quad. And videos of that went viral. You can see more than 100 students there in the videos, mostly unmasked. You're hearing sound right now from videos that were shared on Twitter by bystanders.
6: Syracuse University.
0: The incident drew a stern letter to Syracuse students the next day by J. Michael Haney, university's vice chancellor for strategic initiatives. It was titled, Last Night's Selfish and Reckless Behavior. Here's what he wrote. Last night, a large group of first-year students selfishly jeopardized the very thing that so many of you claim to want from Syracuse University. That is, a chance at a residential college experience. The world is watching, he continued, and they expect you to fail. Prove them wrong. Be better. Be adults. Think of someone other than yourself. And also do not test the resolve of this university to take swift action to prioritize the health and well-being of our campus and the central New York community. Twitter lit up about Syracuse's response, which some saw as maybe a little misplaced. John Warner, a best-selling author about education, was among those who tweeted his view. Yep, I called him up and I asked him to read his tweet.
7: All right, here we go. I think I have a different take on this note from Syracuse leadership accusing students of harming the community and jeopardizing the plans for reopening. It's a failure of institutional leadership and communication above all, not student behavior. Institutions in my view were treating students as customers until they got in the door. They're like, come, we're going to give you the face-to-face experience, it's going to be college, it's going to be exactly what you have been missing out on since last March. And then once they're in the doors, it's as though they are uh, not customers, but stakeholders, right? Like they are the ones who have to have to um, keep the institution going and it's on their heads to do this. And this is just, I think, a betrayal of the responsibilities of administrations and leaderships to serve stakeholders like students. If, if they want students to be stakeholders, make them stakeholders and not customers.
0: And I emailed Josh that student at Syracuse, asking him to send his thoughts on this. I mean, here he was, like, right there. And he wrote me back and said he wanted to use his diary to give an on-the-ground view of what happened. He even took it upon himself to do some reporting to try to get to what he felt was a more accurate story.
6: What happened and what's being portrayed as happening are two very different things right now, so I kind of just want to set some things right and talk about what I know about it from people I've talked to, including... Department of Public Safety officers that were there and stuff like that. Gatherings like that had been happening all the previous nights since quarantine ended. So that was the fourth night of gatherings like that with the DPS patrolling every night and not shutting anything down. Now, what the media has been portraying is that there was a party at the quad for freshmen and that DPS came and shut it down. But what really happened after talking to officers that were there, I was told that they were not there to shut it down. They were just there to tell people to put their masks on like every other night they were there. And when they flashed their, when they shined their flashlights, everybody just kind of dispersed, probably cause I would imagine most people are drunk because it's college and we don't have classes yet. So that's what freshmen do, but I cannot confirm or deny that is the case. So everybody scattered, someone got a video they sent it to dual Cues, and it kind of went viral. And so the school obviously has to save face. And beyond that, yeah, they launched an investigation. We were getting emails that the investigation started that some kids got suspended. Another thing we got was an email about there being a committee that is being put together right now to hear complaints against DPS in about three and a half weeks' time, which means that people are complaining about DPS not doing their job, which is good. Maybe they will be held as accountable just like us students are. I feel like they should be. We are just accountable as they are. I don't know. I've, I've enjoyed my time here. I've stayed out of trouble since the start of quarantine. Th- those first few days there, we got in a little bit of trouble for like exceeding lounge occupancies and that stuff. But other than that, been staying out of trouble and hopefully that incident is not enough to send us all home because I want to stay here and actually have college in person. I'm sure everyone else does as well.
0: To be clear, plenty of colleges still plan to reopen for in person classes this week. In fact, as the reclosing of some colleges made national headlines, some students were en route to their own campuses, which were about to open.
3: Hi, my name is Joseph Ching. I'm an incoming junior studying Industrial Engineering at Purdue University. Um, as you might have heard right now, I'm on a train going back to campus. Uh, it's sort of ironic as the train is Purdue's official mascot. Uh, it's been quite uh, anxiety-inducing in the past couple of days with all of these universities closing after they open for a week or two or backing out of plans. I think there's a good chance that Purdue will do the same unless students really step up. I'm also worried that I made the wrong choice or Purdue made the wrong choice of even have opening in the first place. I really don't wanna see anyone get sick seriously or or suffer but if we all abide by the guidelines i think we can pull it off but it's it's going to be very difficult very difficult i hope we can do it but i'm preparing myself preparing myself to come right back home hi this is joseph as I was walking back to my dorm along State Street, which is the main uh, street with all the um, dining and um, bars, it's a little bit disturbed. And all the bars are open, about half the students are wearing masks. So, right now it looks like it's a recipe for disaster. I mean, we'll see, but. Um, kind of crushed my hopes a little bit.
0: So far, we have been talking about colleges that decided to get back together in person for the new academic year. But at a lot of colleges, the plan all along was to do online for the fall. These are campuses where leaders decided opening up was just too risky. But even that path required lots of planning for an unprecedented semester. And for one professor at San Francisco State University, the situation ended up letting him teach his classes from a surprisingly large distance.
8: This is David Pena, Guzman. In the fall of 2020, I will be teaching from a distance. I will be located in Paris, and my students will be in San Francisco. This is in part because there are a number of archives in Paris that are essential for my research, but primarily it's because my partner lives in Paris. He is French, and this is our temporary solution to the two-body problem. So while my students are in the Bay Area, I will be in the City of Lights. And uh, since we are on the top floor of a six-story building, um, it's quite a lovely view, uh, including the view on the Bastille Monument. And so that means that both my undergraduate and graduate seminars in the fall will be taught from the little corner of this little living room in this little Parisian apartment where this round white table will function as my office desk. My greatest concern or rather fear about teaching this fall is time. More specifically, it is the nine hour time difference that separates Paris, where I am located, from San Francisco, where my students live. One of my courses in the fall, my undergraduate upper division seminar on the history of science is asynchronous, which means that the nine hour time difference won't make that much of a difference. But my other course, my graduate seminar on the humanities, is synchronous and it meets every Wednesday from 4 to 7 p.m. San Francisco time. That is 1 to 4 a.m. Paris time. And that means that on Wednesday nights, every week during the fall semester, I will have to pull an all-nighter. And my worry about this, aside from the fact that my youthful years are behind me, is that I want to make sure that I do the best that I can in my meetings with my students. And I worry that because of the time difference, I won't be able to do that. And so I need to reschedule and restructure my sleep cycle in order to accommodate this new time for teaching that obviously I've never done before.
0: And for some students, preparing for this online-only semester involved a search for a quiet, and connected space to log on.
9: My name is Marjorie Blen and I'm a student at San Francisco State University majoring in Sociology. I'm also a mom of two boys. This semester has been one of the most difficult semester in my life. Before, I would have to get prepared by buying notebooks, highlighters, pencil, binders, and maintaining a knowledge of where my classes are in each building on my campus this coming fall I had to find three spaces in my house to have a quiet work area and have all the resources necessary to make sure I succeed such as laptop pencils writers printer and etc in addition to doing that for myself I also had to do that for my two kids one of them is 7 and the other one is 11 my plan is that if my work area at home in my little two-bedroom apartment does not work out. I will be using my car to do my homework. I'll be util- utilizing my mobile hotspot in or-, or parking at Starbucks, McDonald's, or any open Wi-Fi area to make sure I return in all my assignments on time. If all fails, I will try to really hard to talk to my teachers and my professors. COVID-19 has really disrupted the way higher education this coming fall, but I'm sure that I will try my best to conquer and succeed in my classes this coming fall.
10: Hi, my name is Natalie Ricciardi, and I go to Chapman University. My move-in experience was nothing short of crazy. Back in April, when I was back home because of COVID, I signed a lease without ever having looked in an apartment. I didn't really want to go back to California at the time because I didn't think it was safe so I impulsively signed this lease and just prepared to move in sight unseen but fast forward to August when I got to the apartment it was nothing like I had expected and you know sometimes things just aren't a good fit and so after only three days of living there I had to pack up all of my stuff and move out. I ended up Moving in temporarily with a family member, awaiting my university to see if I could get housing there. And it's looking really good right now. So I'm extremely grateful for Chapman for being so accommodating. These past few days have been extremely stressful because I'm not from here. So I just was wondering, you know, am I going to get housing or am I just going to be stuck for a while? And even though In a normal situation, this would have been all figured out. COVID has really just flipped everything upside down. My university is all online this semester. So really the only reason that I'm back in California right now is because I'm doing an internship with a local hospital. And it was really important to me to be back for that. I think that this whole experience has definitely taught me about flexibility. (laughs) I think you have to be in this situation. It's interesting because I think moving forward this year, since we're going to be all online, everything's just going to look a lot different. And now I feel prepared for it because back in March, the rug was kind of pulled out from under everybody and nobody knew what was going on. But now all of our classes are online and people have had time to prepare both professors and students and the rest of the administration at Chapman. So I have a feeling that it will run a little bit more smoothly. And generally, I'm just really excited. There is is a concern that I have. I think my biggest concern is involving labs because labs are so hands-on. And the type of labs I'll be taking this semester have real-world applications related to patient care and I am concerned that if we're not able to do those labs in person that I'm not going to retain the curriculum as well because you do things and you learn better by doing them and when you're just watching a video or talking about something it's just not the same as being able to be hands-on and practicing with your peers For example, this year, I know that in human physiology, we're going to be learning how to take blood pressure and look at EKGs and different things like that. And I am just hoping that by the time we get to those aspects of the lab, that we're able to return to either hybrid or in-person learning.
0: I mentioned at the start of this episode that some of the diarists here have already had unexpected twists in their stories. So... Not long ago, I got a new installment from Rachel Davenport, our diarist at Texas State, about some news for her fall plans. But
4: today I got the excellent news um, that my large lecture is going to be moved online. (sighs) So much relief right now. So among the courses that I teach, um, one of them is a large lecture, it's in a class that holds 250 students. And so we meet there twice a week for lecture, and then my students are all split up into smaller labs throughout the week. So those labs are still in person, um, but the large lecture portion will be online. That's so great. (laughs) I just feel so much relief right now. It all came about because um, our faculty senate has been very active. They surveyed faculty, they've been pushing on the administration, and I don't think that they have moved the president and provost very much, but I do think that they have moved a few of the deans. And so our dean um, ended up telling our chair to reach out to those teaching large lectures. So some faculty have been able to petition to move their course online. And as of now, our university is about 36% online. I wanted to go online. I teach online. I'm certified to teach online. I'm good at it. And it's not my favorite way to teach, but in a pandemic it's absolutely my preferred way to teach, but I don't have any of the CDC listed risk factors. I don't live with anybody with them. I don't have small children at home I mean, any of the things that could have moved my course online, I don't, I don't qualify. So I was not able to request to teach online, but... It is, I guess, getting to some people that our, our large lectures are especially dangerous, where students are three feet apart at most, at the best of times. You know, when sitting still, and of course when they're coming and going, and uh, they're much, much closer together. And uh, so, our dean told chairs, "Hey, you know, let's be especially flexible with large lectures." So, our my chair emailed the faculty teaching large lectures. I believe there were 15 of us, faculty, still on the books to teach a class of 200 or more students. So he emailed the 15 of us and said, hey, you don't need to have a CDC risk factor. If you want to teach online, you just tell me. And 10 of us did, 10 out of the 15. And I believe all 10 of us were approved. So fortunately, my department has seriously decreased the amount of students meeting in these giant lecture halls. So,
0: (laughs) woohoo! Teaching partly online this semester. So who gets to teach online? And who has to teach in person? This is one of the moments where I wanted to hear how Davenport's experience fit in a broader reality for higher ed. So I called up Brian Alexander, a longtime higher ed consultant who's been tracking these reopening plans carefully.
11: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I mean that's that's a in a sense it's a micro political question uh, because I think this is playing out in departments, um, you know, in conversations between uh, chairs, department chairs, division chairs, provosts, faculty members, uh, instructors of all kinds, including grad students, uh, and you see it in things like that. Columbia dean asking, uh, you know, pleading with Columbia faculty and grad students to return to the campus. Uh, but I think there's also you know the the macro level the, the the you know simple political view that this is a question of faculty autonomy. Um, this is also an extent of uh, faculty governance. Um, to what extent faculty can run these things? Um, and then this also becomes a labor question. You know, do, you know faculty with tenure um, have a great deal more clout and decision making to decide to advocate for themselves. I want to be online, for example. Um, as opposed to adjuncts who uh, have none of that. Uh, and that's, that's you know,
0: like I, I, I okay, said, so this is playing out both in the political and the micro-political senses all across the country. I do have to say, professors who always knew they were going to teach online only, who spent the summer preparing their spaces for online teaching, they seemed a lot more relaxed when they talked about it.
12: Hi, Pete Sands here uh, from UW-Milwaukee, where I direct the Honors College and am an associate professor of English. I'm coming to you from my home office. i uh, been asked to describe it a little and still talk about what's happening on campus. So uh, you know, it's a pretty decent home office. I've got plenty of light, plenty of space. Uh, it's also a spare bedroom, so there's a, a pull-out couch that's comfy to lie on uh, or to sit on and read and um, the door closes, which is pretty important when you're working from home. I feel pretty prepared actually, personally. I've been teaching online or in networked environments since 1990. I'm a little less prepared to help the staff I work with, um, some of whom are teaching online for the first time, but we start, uh, the contract starts on Monday the 24th, instruction starts on September 2nd, and I would say that we are
0: ready to go. And some students who knew their classes would be online for the fall, they also seem pretty ready to try the kind of remote learning they did in the spring. Like this student, who's transferring from Milwaukee Area Technical College to a four-year where her classes will be online.
13: Hey, My name is Adrian. I'm a first-year transfer student at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. I was at MATC for three years, where I graduated with my associates in e-production or digital media, which we took inside of Milwaukee PBS, which is located inside of MATC. Uh, unfortunately, our campus is majority, uh, mostly closed due to the COVID, but there are still some areas of the school I believe that we still can access, which I will do in the future. My classes actually don't start until September 2nd, so I have a week and some change before um, my classes started. Today was the first time I did hear from my um, instructor for one of my classes, and I believe he teaches quite a few of my classes actually. Now, I am a part-time student because I do work throughout the week because, you know, I'm an adult, gotta eat, gotta live. But when the students
0: who were planning to go back in person suddenly got an email saying, actually, no, you have to go online now, that actually led to some disruption for some students.
14: Uh, This is Luz Elena Naya Chong, and I'm at Texas State University at Alcate Library. I am sitting in a chair at the end of the hallway of the library on the fourth floor and it is impressive once I got out of the elevator into the fourth floor how the whole floor was pretty much empty except for one person that I could see. Uh, right now, um, well, my whole semester has transitioned online again and um, I received this news last week, so now I am facing going back to my hometown and living in San Marcos, a place that <laughs> I call home right now because this is where I study. It's very hard to leave a place that I have been living in for almost two years, and just because gotta pack everything and um, so. It's been a couple of months since I've seen anybody else rather than my boyfriend. And now he, his family is facing um, their own struggles because they all got um, COVID. And we are waiting to see how his grandparents will react to the virus.
0: So these are difficult
14: times for everybody.
0: So for this student at Texas State, Preparing for back to school suddenly meant packing up everything and leaving the college town that she loved to move back home with her parents, since all the classes that she's in moved online. She sent another audio diary just the other day, on Sunday, from the airport.
14: And right now I'm at the airport uh, in Austin, waiting for my flight to go back home to the Valley. I personally have nothing prepared. I don't even know at what time I have my first class tomorrow. I've been traveling, I'm going to travel all day until I made it back. And um, thankfully, my boyfriend's grandfather was able to get through Corona and now he's back safe and sound in his house with his family. I think most of them have recovered from the virus, but still, so I'm afraid for the people that are going to be staying on campus about how the cases are going to increase and what, how are they going to be affected and what is going to happen for, to them.
0: So now you've met all the students and professors who've agreed to share their experiences on the podcast this semester. None of the professors we've heard from were the ones who made this tough call to either go back in person or not. And hearing from the students, too, there's a sense of just being at the mercy of others to make good decisions to keep education going this semester. And also at the mercy of the virus. I'm finishing this episode on Monday, August 24th. This is actually already the first week of classes for most of the people you heard today on the podcast. So we will soon hear what happened when all this preparation and sometimes the scrapping of plans and having to pivot. We'll see what happens when those plans are finally put into action.
3: Hello, this is Joseph at Purdue University. I have this bet going on with my friends and just to guess whether we're gonna stay on campus or not. And my two friends, they they think we're gonna stay. They're optimistic, but uh, I said, I, I really hope. That they're they're right, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the skeptic here and say that we're gonna go back eventually.
4: Rachel Davenport here from Texas State. Classes start in one week. If everything stays as planned, I am sixty percent ready. It's not enough. Any other semester, I would be ninety some percent ready. Now that's assuming we everything goes as planned. If everything gets forced online within one to three weeks, which I suspect it will, because I'm reading the news, uh, then I'm maybe 25% ready because they made me plan for not being all online. So I'm going to be much less
0: ready. I'm so
4: tired. I'm working so much.
0: And I just, honestly, I just don't even know what the odds are for this going well or not. This has been the Ed Search Podcast and the first in our semester-long series of Pandemic Campus Diaries. The next installment of this series will be in two weeks, when we're going to hear how everyone's first classes went. Don't worry, we're going to still have a new podcast every week, like we always do, we come out on Tuesdays, but this series will alternate every other week on the feed, and the other weeks we'll have our usual format with interviews with educators. You can see pictures of the students and professors and read more about them on our show page. Just go to edsurge.com and click on podcast. And please, if you don't already, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on all the apps, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, whatever your phone in your pocket, go to your podcast app, subscribe. We put a lot into this and the, the students and professors are, are doing so much to share their stories. We hope you will continue to stay tuned. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. Our mysterious music was performed in my house by Ruhoval. Special thanks, as always, to Tony Wan, the managing editor at Ed Surge's journalism team. We really could not do this without him, and to all the journalists on the Ed Surge team. We will be back next week with another episode, and in two weeks with another Diaries podcast episode. Thanks so much for listening. Be well. Cool. Which one do you
7: think we should do